You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. All right, I'm going to welcome everyone back to their seats. If you want to grab last coffee or pastries and head on back, feel free to grab one of the Esther Scripture Journals if you're using that. Or if you don't have a Bible and want one, we have the hardback black Bibles there. We're in Esther chapter 7 today. And if you use one of those pew Bibles, that's uh, on page 414. And if you don't own a Bible, that is our gift to you. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word, so feel free to bring that home. Esther chapter 7, we're going to go through the whole chapter, verses 1 through 10 today. So, There's a Spanish proverb that says, Habits are first cobwebs, then cables. Which means that the behaviors that we repeat are not always very powerful when they begin. And in fact, sometimes they even go unnoticed. But over time, they become like cables that wrap around us. They become powerful and nearly impossible to break. And today, I'm not going to talk so much about the habits themselves as much as I want to help us together see how the rhythms that we keep, they change us and they shape us. Our lives are the result of the desires and the affections that we cultivate in our hearts through our habits and our routines. We're nearing the end of our series in Esther, which we've called Ordinary People, Extraordinary God, because one of the things that we see is even though God's name is not mentioned in the story, he's actually the main character of the story, and he's at work through the lives of these ordinary people. And what we'll find is that these people in the story, they are also shaped by what they cultivate in their hearts. Esther is a book about a young Jewish girl who becomes queen, and she does so at the perfect time in history to help undermine the plans of this evil man named Haman, who has come up with a strategy to destroy all the Jews. And at great risk of her own life, she decides she's going to do something about it. In our passage, she's going to finally reveal the evil plot of Haman, and he will receive the natural consequence for the destruction that he has cultivated in his heart. And so let me pray for us, and then we'll open to Esther chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, as always, for the gift it is to us, your people. As we open it here now, God, we pray that your spirit would be helping us to see and hear what you have for us. We know that the grass withers, the flower fades, even our lives are just but a mist. Your word will last forever. And so as we open our Bibles, we ask for your help. Would you open our eyes that we might behold the wondrous things found here in your word? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll begin in Esther 7, verse 1, where it says, So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again asked, or again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king... Let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. Esther's wisdom here in this passage is masterful. We see it coming out. 
the author is doing their best to help us see her patience and her intentionality throughout the story. Interaction here with the king in verses 2 and 3 is almost a word-for-word repeat of both of their conversations that they had in chapter 5. This is the third time that he has asked her this same basic question, what is your wish, what is your request, and reassures her that she will have what is granted, or she will have, it will be granted to her what she asks for. And each time she starts also with the same words in response, if I have found favor in your sight, and if it pleases the king. As the reader, we are meant to see here Esther's intentionality, that she's in control of the situation. Here she sits in the presence of the two most powerful men of the kingdom. And they think so highly of themselves, but they're completely unaware of what is actually happening. And as readers, we also don't entirely know what's going to happen yet. We want to know, how is Esther going to deal with this? But we trust that Esther knows what she is doing. And she goes on in verse 4. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Finally, the evil plot of Haman has been revealed. All is exposed. All has been brought into the light. And Esther has been careful throughout this process not to accuse and indict the king himself. She needs the king to help her undo what has been done. And even though he is complicit in the edict to kill the Jews, it is Haman who was the mastermind. He is the archetype of evil who has now been revealed. And rightfully so, Haman is terrified before the king and the queen. And in verse 7, we see that the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were, where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. The king here is furious. He is drunk with wine. And this is reminiscent of what happened in chapter one in the rage that he had, which led him to banish his first queen. So the king leaves for the garden, but Haman stays to beg for his life. He knows that Esther is the one who's in control. The king will do what is asked of her in this moment. Now, there's no indication that he intends to do harm to her. For everything we see, he's begging for his life. But when the king returns, he thinks that's what's happening. He thinks she is, he is now trying to hurt his queen. And so further enraged, he accuses Haman of attacking the queen. And then Haman's removed with a bag over his head. Verses 7 through 8 here in this passage, they're a powerful summation of the characters within this story. The king is once again drunk and impulsive. Haman is concerned still just for his own life, his own preservation, as his wicked plots are now leading to his own self-destruction. And Esther is patient, level-headed, and confident. And in the final verses, we see a description of this ultimate destruction of Haman. It says, Then Harbona, 
one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. To compound Haman's shame, one of the eunuchs there kind of betrays him and tells him, hey, there's a gallows in Haman's backyard that he built for Mordecai. And in the ultimate twist of fortune, Haman is hanged in his own property. And the chapter ends with the king's wrath abating. And the narrative here has clearly shifted within Esther. The king is now aware of Haman's evil plot. Esther is poised to undo what has been done. Now, the primary tension of the story, which is this, ma- this massacre of all the Jews, the, pl- the plot to do that, it's not fully resolved, but we anticipate its resolution. And rather than focus on that larger story this morning, I want to do a bit of a character study on these three and the way we see them here in chapter 7. I want us to see how the events of chapter 7 are the results of decades of decisions and actions. What I want us to see today is that each of the small decisions that we make, the habits that we keep, the rhythms that we make a priority, and all the small and large liturgies liturgies of life, they shape us and they do something to us. And the primary message of the sermon this morning is that you will become what you cultivate in your heart. You will become what you cultivate in your heart. And that's what we see here in the life of Haman, the queen, and the king. It's easy to read the events of chapter 7 and forget that they happened after years of each of them cultivating certain loves and affections, their habits and their rhythms. They have shaped their unconscious beliefs that have determined their actions. Our modern minds like to think of ourselves as entirely rational beings. That the things that we do, we do them because we think about them. And that we can change what we do simply by instruction and information and just thinking something different. But we cannot automatically change our behavior as if we're machines with just new inputs. When was the last time you thought about changing a habit? Maybe you wanted to adjust your diet. Maybe you wanted to reduce your screen time or stop gossiping at work. And I'll just say, how did that go? Right? We all have experiences of times that we wanted to change something. Every January, we go through this together as a culture. We experience that. And this is because we're not primarily rational beings. According to the Bible, we are people of desire. And what the Bible calls inordinate desires are far more powerful than we often realize. And so my aim today is to help us see that what is happening in the story of Esther also happens in our own lives today. The first reality I want us to see is that you will become like what you love. In the story of Esther, Haman becomes the archetype of evil, and that didn't just happen overnight. He has cultivated this wickedness in his heart for years, decades even. The author doesn't tell us everything about Haman's motivations, but we learn a few things about him. He's an Amalekite, which is an ancient enemy of the Jewish people, And he has likely grown up hearing stories about how terrible the Jews were. This is one of the ways that people grow up learning to hate other races and ethnicities when small and large messages are given over and over again that dehumanize and demonize others. 
We also know that Haman aspired to high office, which he was given earlier in the book, and that Mordecai was immediately disgusted by Haman being put into that office. Haman had been cultivating a lust for power and influence that was wicked and selfish. And what we see in our passage today is the result of decades of Haman loving power, significance, and his own importance. The book of Esther as a whole takes place over the course of about 10 to 12 years. Now, we don't think about that always because the events of chapters 4 through 7, where it really kind of the narrative picks up pace in terms, it gets really interesting. It happens in just five days, and three of them are spent in fasting and prayer. But the events of chapters 1 through 3 take place over at least nine years. It's easy to think that the events of these five days are the result of isolated decisions, but in reality, they are the result of years of cultivating certain loves in their hearts. And for us, it might be hard to relate to Haman because he is the epitome of wickedness in this story, but the king is someone we might relate to even better, whose actions are the result of him cultivating his own desire for pleasure. Now, we may not be cultivating hatred like Haman, but we do pursue our own pleasure like the king. In verse 7, it says that the king rose in his wrath from wine drinking. This is not the first time in Esther that the king has been drunk with wine. Sometimes it makes him merry. At other times, he's an angry drunk. And here, we're happy that he gets angry at Haman in chapter 7. But what we might not think about is that the drunken, impulsive, and hedonistic behavior of the king in chapter 7 is the same as it was in chapter 1 when he banished Queen Vashti. And it's the same as it was in chapter 3 when he approved of Haman's edict to massacre the Jews. What the king has cultivated in his heart has become his pattern of behavior. He pursues his own pleasures over and over again in the wars that he fights, the women that he pursues, the food and alcohol that he indulges in. And here, in the most pivotal moment in the story, he becomes what he loves, impulsive, drunken, and rageful. In 2016, James K.A. Smith published a book called You Are What You Love. And he argues that the repetitive, habitual activities in which we are involved are not just the evidence of love, but they shape our loves. Our habits do something to us. If you want to be a kind person, we don't just stop and consciously decide to be kind at every opportunity, but a kind person is a habitually kind person. It becomes automatic. Maybe not perfect every time, but consistently kind. And so he argues that the way that we train ourselves to become more like Jesus involves two steps. The first is to understand what is shaping us. And he writes... Some cultural practices will be effectively training your love, automating a kind of orientation to the world that seeps into your unconscious way of being. That's why you might not love what you think. We must learn to interrogate our own hearts and our own desires, to uncover the cultural influences, the routines and the rituals that are shaping us, these routines even become predictable, and they impact our loves and our affections. For example, have you ever had an experience where you were thinking about something, maybe like going camping, and then all of a sudden advertisements for camping gear starts popping up all around you? And sometimes we get creeped out by this, and we might think, is someone monitoring my speech? Is that Alexa or Siri in my home? Like, are they hearing me? 
I read an article recently about a Stanford professor who suggested that it's more likely that advertisers have used their complex algorithms and the massive amounts of data they've collected on people to know that you are the type of person who will be thinking about going camping around the time that you start to think about going camping. That's scary, yeah. <laughs> Smith argues that once we've uncovered the desire-shaping routines, then the second step we must take is to retrain our loves, to introduce new habits, new rhythms. We need to take conscious steps to retrain our unconscious desires. That's why we need one another, for example. And Smith argues that worship together is key to our formation. And so he says, it is because worship is the feast where we acquire new hungers for God and for what God desires and are then sent out into his creation to act accordingly. We need one another to help us cultivate hearts that love God and not just ourselves. Think about the people and the stories that had shaped Haman and compare them with the people and the stories that had shaped Esther. The people in Haman's life encouraged him to cultivate hatred toward others and love of self. For example, at the end of chapter 5, his wife and his friends encouraged him to create the gallows and to have Mordecai hung there. The people in Haman's life helped cultivate hatred. Whereas in the formative years of Esther's life, she was raised by Mordecai. And we don't know all of their practices. They, they were probably not consistently practicing all of the things that maybe God's people you'd want them to do. They may not have been entirely faithful to their Jewish heritage at every turn. But somewhere inside of both of them, they knew the stories of God. They had heard them. They had them built into their lives. So that here in this crucible moment, this time of greatest need, these stories and routines and loves had shaped them. And Mordecai is there to remind Esther of her identity in chapter 4. And as a result, she becomes an agent of salvation for the Jews. For each of the characters in the story, their actions are the result of all that they had cultivated in their hearts throughout their lives. They became what they loved. And one of the most important ways that we shape our own affections and our own desires is in worship and in relationship with one another. When we sing alongside one another, when we confess sin to one another, when we remind one another of the good news of Jesus, if we will become what we love and, and what we cultivate in our hearts, then we want to proactively cultivate a love for Jesus through the rhythms and the habits that we keep. The second reality that I want us to see today is that you will eventually get what you love. The destruction that Haman experiences at the end of the chapter is the inevitable end of what he loved. He loved himself. He desired chaos and destruction toward others, and it led to his own destruction. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, said it this way, There are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom, in the end, God says, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Lewis's conclusion is that hell is the inevitable end for those who cultivate a heart that loves what is opposed to God. We will get what we want because God will give us what we want. And we will be blinded by our love of idols, not realizing that we are choosing hell. In Paul's letter to the Romans, 
He writes that the consequence of our worship of idols is that God gives us over to our corrupted minds. And the result is that we become evil, malicious, covetous, deceitful, boastful, and foolish. One of the worst things that God can do to us is to give us what we love if what we love is opposed to him. This way of thinking then leads Paul to write in chapter 6 of Romans that we are all slaves of the one that we obey. We are either slaves of sin or we are slaves of righteousness. In Romans 6, 19, he writes, At one time you presented yourself as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. Now you present yourself as a slave to righteousness, leading to more righteousness. And just a few verses later, he tells us the result of all this. For the end of lawlessness and idolatry is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And here's the logical argument that God is making through Paul. You will be slaves of something, either to the things of God called righteousness, which leads to more righteousness and in the end eternal life, or to the things opposed to God called lawlessness, which will lead to more lawlessness and in the end, death. In our story, Haman's lust for power, his love of self-destruction led to more and more destruction, and it ended in the destruction of his own life. You will become like what you love, and you will eventually get the things that you desire. And the scary thing about this is that we are often unaware of what we are cultivating in our hearts. If we do not interrogate our own hearts and influences, if we do not investigate our habits and our rituals, someone will shape them for us. And the interests of advertising companies are not your eternal good. It is primarily the financial gain of the brands that they serve. The interests of social media companies are not the good desires of your heart, but to feed or your need to feed another hit of that feel-good hormone to keep you enslaved to the swipe of your finger or the impulse to pick up your phone. The power and the danger of what we cultivate in our hearts is that we often don't see it as a problem. It produces the all-consuming need to succeed at work, the delusion of sexual sin, the ignorance of materialism. And if we have become blind to the things of God, blind to even our own desires, then we might ask, how can we possibly see? We need God to interrupt our lives. And I believe even now, God is doing that for some of you in this room. God's spirit wants you to see the things of God. Here in our gathering... The Holy Spirit is opening our eyes, the eyes of our heart, helping us to see our own idols and our own ignorance. And if that is you, then let me say, don't suppress the voice of God. Don't ignore his prompting. Listen to his voice. Respond. Get help and invite other people into this. One of the best ways that you can respond is to be open and transparent with other people. You can come talk to me afterward if you want to, maybe to your home group leader or to someone else that you trust is cultivating a love of God in their heart. Haman had no one like that in his life. His friends and his wife encouraged him to cultivate hatred for God and his people. Those are dangerous people to have as the voices of wisdom in our lives. We need people like Mordecai 
people who will speak with the wisdom of God into our lives. And I'm grateful that my wife, Megan, is one of those people, someone who's not afraid to speak truth to me in my life. This, ha- this has happened on more than one occasion. I'll share one example. I was in this email war with someone who was being very critical of me. And it's not in this room, so don't worry. I'm not talking about any of you. But it was someone who had some loose affiliations with River City. They sent me this long and critical email about one of the many changes we've gone through as a church over the past five years. And when I got the email, I thought about my response for way too long. And you probably know what I'm talking about sometimes when you're like thinking about all the things you want to say in return. Well, eventually I sent an email back. And in my mind, it was a perfectly crafted email, you know. (laughs) I explained myself, of course, flawless logic. I was respectful. I was certain it would end the debate. Why wouldn't my perfectly crafted email solve this problem? Well, 24 hours later, I realized they did not agree with me. Amazingly, my email had not solved the problems. And so as I read their email, I was frustrated, confused, far too sure of myself. And of course, the logical next step was just to let it go. So of course, I started drafting another email. (laughs) Once again, I was sure my email was going to solve this problem. Again, right? Well-crafted, articulate, logical. Of course, they would see my perspective and they would agree. Well, they didn't. I got another email back. And so, of course, now I'm going to let it go, right? Now I start drafting another email until Megan, at this point, says to me, and she she helps me do something that I could not do on my own, really. She helped me to stop the cycle. And she just said, hey, another email is not going to solve this. Tug of war requires two people to pull on the rope. You can end this just by setting, setting down your end of it. And that was the best thing I could hear in that moment. She kindly and confidently confronted me, helped me to see what I could not see. I was blinded by my inordinate desires, and I needed someone else to point that out. It is scary when we realize that we will get what we love. It should lead us to ask ourselves what we are cultivating in our hearts and who is helping us see more clearly. But it doesn't have to be a scary thing. So we come to the third reality I want us to see today. The first was that we become like what we love. The second is that we will eventually get what we love. And the third, the good news, is that the one we love became like us. When we start to think about the reality of what I'm describing, it can be alarming to us to realize that we will get what we love and that our idols blind us from the destruction and death that they will cause. We need God to interrupt this progression. And in the story of Esther here that happened through Mordecai, as Esther came to see her true identity as one of God's people in chapter 4, when she saw the crisis of her people and was forced to choose between her Persian or her Jewish identity, she trusted in the providence and the power of God and became an agent of salvation for her people. And in Esther chapter 7, she has now become the one whom God appointed to save her people. In the story, Esther is now referred to as the queen. Prior to her stepping into the king's throne room to save her people in chapter 5, she was always referred to as just Esther, even after she had become the queen. But when she identifies herself with God's people and becomes an agent of salvation, her name changes in the story. And she is often now referred to as Queen Esther. Like in verse 7 of our chapter, it says that Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. Esther steps out of the protection of her own court position to identify with God's people. 
And it is only when she is willing to risk her status as the queen by becoming an agent of salvation that she starts to be referred to as the queen within the story. The good news today is that Jesus became like us. And as a result, he changes us and transforms us so that now the one that we love is him. So we can become like him instead of our inordinate desires. We will get him and eternal life and not lawlessness and death. When we understand the power of our idols and desires, then we realize how much we need God to disrupt the consequence of our sin. And he did that in the person of Jesus as he stepped out of his heavenly court position and became an agent of salvation for us. Recently, a Stanford neurobiologist named Robert Sapolsky wrote a book called Determined in which he argues that free will is a myth and that virtually all human behavior is beyond our conscious control. He is one of the foremost scientists who supports the philosophical theory of determinism. And he argues that our decisions and choices are not freely chosen. In any situation, it is impossible for a person to do anything other than the thing that they do. Because our actions are always the result of innumerable unknown influences, as a neurobiologist, he's studying the human brain to try and provide scientific support for what has been a philosophical argument. And as expected, he has received heavy critique because our late modern minds like to think of ourselves as totally free, free to choose what we want, when we want, intuitively. We do know that we have some type of agency in our lives. We know that all of his conclusions cannot be true. But as we've, already, as we've already said, right, we're not machines. We are not as rational as we think that we are. We cannot just simply input a new piece of information and immediately change behavior. But Sapolsky, I think, mistakenly thinks we're a different kind of machine. We're a machine whose actions are the inevitable conclusion of thousands of inputs that we don't actually know. And he goes on then to argue that because we are the result of these influences, we're not responsible for our actions, as an atheist, he has a severely limited category for justice. Without a concept of God or good and evil in the world, why should anyone be held accountable for their actions? But naturally, we know that we are responsible. We are accountable to God for the things that we do, for our actions and our desires. And so again, we ask ourselves, what do we do about this? How does God reconcile the consequence we deserve for what we've cultivated in our hearts if we are responsible for our decisions and are slaves to the idolatry that we invite into our hearts, that is the worst news you could hear this morning, unless we can somehow learn to love the things of God instead. In the story of Esther, Haman had cultivated hatred in his heart. He builds a gallows for Mordecai that ended up becoming the device of his own destruction. And this is what happened at the cross. The devil, who is the enemy of your soul, did not realize he was doing the same thing when he entered the heart of Judas and helped send Jesus to the cross. The picture that we have in the Bible is that our inordinate desires will blind us, consume us, and eventually lead to our destruction. And that is what happens to the prince of lies. I can only imagine how blind Satan was by his lust for evil. As Jesus went to the cross, he must have thought of all the times that God had thwarted his plans. All the times that what he meant for evil, God used for good. Like here in the story of Esther. Perhaps he was even thinking, Haman hung on his own gallows, but finally, God will be the one who is hanged. 
In his own evil heart, he could not see that the sacrifice and death of Jesus was actually the path to victory. Because Jesus was not going to hang on the cross for his own death, but in place of ours. He was going to hang for all our inordinate desires, for all the idolatry we have cultivated in our hearts. The gallows meant for Christ became the path of salvation for us. And in a very real sense, it was Satan, sin, and death that was dealt the final blow. They were the ones who were buried in the grave. And more than anything, that is what we need. We need the death of Christ to release us from the slavery of our desires. And in our new freedom, we will learn to cultivate a love for God as we worship together, sing together, pray, confess sin together, and encourage one another. You will become what you cultivate in your heart. So let us be a people who cultivate a love for the things of God. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.